you can turn to Matthew chapter 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. And I want you to keep your Bibles open because we are going to uh, move through Scripture a little bit this morning. I'm going to take you to, this morning, one of my favorite, favorite passages uh, in the Scripture. And this is the invitation that Jesus himself gave uh, to those who were following him, to those who were listening to him preach. And uh, it has always spoken to me, and I hope that it will speak to you uh, as well this morning. So uh, we're going to be re- looking at, in particular, chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. So I'm going to read those first, and then we're going to go back and look at the whole chapter just to kind of get the context uh, of this teaching so to make sure that we understand it. So. If you'll read with me in, um, uh, silently as I read aloud, beginning in Matthew uh, chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we want to hear from you. I pray that your spirit would just speak through me uh, to us as we gather today. Father, that we would hear a word from you and that your word would sink deep into our hearts, into our minds, and it would produce fruit in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So let me give you the context uh, of chapter 11, the context in which this was, uh, Jesus gave this invitation. So beginning at the, at the beginning of chapter 11, in verses 1 through 6, we see where John the Baptist sent messengers to Jesus. And those messengers came to Jesus with a specific question. That question it was, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them by telling them to look at what he was doing. Uh, And then he says in verse 6, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I kind of like the way the uh, New American Standard Version actually translates that. It it says, Blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. In substance, what Jesus said in answer to John's question was, Yes, I am the one. Do not stumble over me. That's what it means to be offended. Do not stumble over me. So put this question in your mind. How could you stumble over Jesus Christ? That's one of the first questions we want to look at. Um, Then in verses 7 through 19, Jesus turns to the crowds and says to them uh, that... John came as God's promised messenger and prophet to prepare the way for the Lord's Messiah. John came neither eating or drinking, quoting from the Old Testament. Uh, John came following essentially what was a Nazarite vow. 
a Nazarite vow of, dedic of dedication being set apart to God for special purpose and time. And they rejected John. But he, Jesus, came eating and drinking. Jesus came living amongst the people, eating with them, walking among them, and they rejected him as well. They called Jesus a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus brings these contrasting um, comings. You have John the Baptist, God's messenger coming, as a Nazarite following uh, the Nazarite vow of separation, being separate to, holy to God, set apart, holy to God. And Jesus comes, the incarnate God, to live amongst his people and to walk with them and to talk with them and to even be called a friend of sinners. That's the, the contrast that's set up in this passage. Now, I want you to note that both John the Baptist and Jesus came proclaiming the exact same message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In verses 20 through 24 of uh, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus then went on to denounce the cities and towns where he had been doing his ministry, where he had worked all of these miracles and done all these mighty works. He denounces them because they did not recognize him as the Messiah, and they did not repent. He told them that the day of judgment would be more tolerable for the wicked cities of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom uh, and Gomorrah, which he doesn't mention specifically, towns, cities that were destroyed completely, wiped from the face of the earth by God's judgment in time that was there. That's the context in which we have this passage in Matthew eleven twenty five. So again, John the Baptist comes, sends his people asking the question, are you the one? Or is another to come? Jesus says, yes, I am the one. And then Jesus says, John came proclaiming the same message that I came proclaiming, and you have rejected that message. At that time, verse 25, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Let's just look at that portion of Jesus of the, of the passage for the moment. So uh, Jesus speaks to God directly. We call that praying, but it's the same thing, right? He speaks to God directly. And he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, this is a Sunday school teacher in me. I always read the Scripture and ask lots of questions. I think when we read the Scripture, that's what we do. What does this mean? What is he saying? What's going on with that? So I'm going to tell you the questions that just pop up in my mind with this passage. Who are the wise and understanding? And who are the children that are mentioned in verse 25? Uh, the, the things that were hidden from the wise and understanding and revealed to the children. What things were hidden from the wise and understanding? And what was revealed to the children? Why was and why is, was it, why was it God's gracious will 
to hide these things from the wise and understanding, but reveal them to the children. Was God being cruel and hiding it from the wise and understanding? Why does it say it that way? Why was it well-pleasing in God's sight to hide, it from, to hide these things from some, but not from all? The answer to these questions, I think we can find very clearly in 1 Corinthians. So I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul gives us an answer to the questions about why these things were hidden from some and revealed to others. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 and reading through verse 31 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where the, the, where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, uh, for since, excuse me, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So who are the wise and the understanding? Those who are wise and understanding according to the world's ways and in the world's things. Who are the children? Those who are more simple and straightforward, right, in the world's ways, but who will listen to God and to what he says. Why did God hide something from them, from the, the wise and understanding, but reveal it to the um, children, to the simple and straightforward? So that the answer is in First Corinthians, so that no human being might boast in his presence. And then he goes on to say, so that Christ Jesus would become to and for us God's wisdom, God's righteousness, God's sanctification, and God's redemption. So we look at this beginning passage. Jesus prays, I thank you, Father. You are the Lord of heaven and earth, right? 
And you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to the little. What are these things? That Jesus is the wisdom, the righteousness, the sanctification, and the redemption of God for God's people, those whom he has chosen. Let's go on to verse 27 uh, of Matthew chapter 11. Back to Matthew chapter 11. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Again, the passage brings questions to my mind. What did Jesus mean when he said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father? What are those all things? Well, what we have just read is that what those all things are is that Jesus is the one who was to come, the promised Messiah. Jesus is God's righteousness, God's wisdom, God's redemption, God's sanctification for us. That's what the all things are. What did Jesus or why did Jesus say, or what did he mean when he said, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son? I kind of think of this uh, as very much a statement of personal relationship. What's Jesus talking about when he says, no one knows the Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father? They were father and son. They know each other in a way that nobody else could know them at all in that sense. Um, let me ask the next, next question, and we'll, we'll, we'll continue, go back with that thought. He says, what was Jesus' point uh, when he said, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Uh, again, I think this goes back to the question that was asked by John the Baptist. Are you the one who, was, uh, who is to come, or should we look for another? If you turn to uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 1, verses 1 through 3, I think we see just a little bit of the idea that Jesus has uh, in this passage when He talks about uh, what it is that He reveals I want to read from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the Old Testament that was given to us. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint uh, of God. His nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become more, uh, as much more superior to angels as he, the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What did Jesus come to do? To reveal the exact nature of God. To reveal God to us as the Son is the living revelation of who God is. Um, so we see just in this, this uh, passage here, all things that have been handed over. Uh, no one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except for the Son. God the Father has given to Jesus the Son uh, our righteousness 
is given to Jesus, the Son, to be our righteousness, our redemption, and our sanctification. God the Father has also given to Jesus, his Son, the privilege of revealing him himself, God the Father, God incarnate, God, or the Trinity, uh, revealing himself to us. We start the chapter with the question, are you the one who is to come? We see how uh, Jesus starts to address this question uh, first by just speaking to his own Father and thanking the Father for what he has done. Uh, and then we get to um, what Jesus has come to do, which is to reveal the Father to us. And that leads us to Jesus' statement in verse 28, his invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's the connection between the truths that were taught uh, in verse 27 and the invitation that Jesus gives in verses 28 through 30? To whom does Jesus issue or extend this invitation? Uh, so let's just stop for just a moment and think about this. What's the connection between these? Jesus says, I am the one. Blessed are those who do not stumble right, or are not offended by me. I am the one. I have come to reveal God the Father. And then what does he say? He gives the invitation, come to me. I am the one. Come to me. Um, to whom did Jesus extend this invitation? To all who labor and are heavy laden. What does he mean by that? To all who labor and are heavy laden. Now, you can read this verse, and it, it, this invitation, it gives us a uh, series of visual images that we can, as we read it and we think about it. So you think, uh, as I read through this, I think, you know, all you who labor are heavy laden, immediately I think of the idea of having a huge monstrous backpack on my back. And it's got me bent over and barely able to walk carrying that backpack. You know, you're moving forward and you're laboring. You're working through. Jesus issues the invitation to those who labor are heavy laden, right? And then he, um, he promises something, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And he asks them to do something. So let's just let's stop and think of, for a moment about what is he talking about here. Is he physically talk, Is he talking about physically those who live life, working hard, struggling, just barely getting through life. Is that the meaning of labor and heavy laden? Or could he mean something else? What did he come to do? He came to reveal the Father. The Father's love. He came to be our righteousness, our redemption, our um, Sanctification. In what sense do we labor and are we heavy laden? Well, stop for just a moment and go back to the time in which Jesus 
proclaim this message. What was the message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message that he came preaching. What did the Jewish people in that time, in that day, think they had to do to make themselves right with God? There was the law out here. And they had come to believe wrongly, mistakenly, that they made themselves right with God. How? By keeping the law. And all of its precepts, all of its commands. And they were burdened and uh, heavy laden with that obligation to keep the law. That's the sense in which they were uh, laboring and heavy laden. So what's Jesus' command to them? Exhortation. This, this is really not a, a straight command. It is an, a, a, an invitation that is given in such a way that it's a command. What is the invitation to do? Come to me. Jesus said, come to me. What did he want them to do? What he didn't want them to do was to give assent to a set of facts or a bunch of theories or principles or ideas. What is that an invitation to do? If I look at my son and say to him, come here to me, what am I asking him to do? To come close to me. What is the invitation that Jesus issues? Come to me. What he asked, ask. What he asked then and asked now is that we come to him. We enter into a relationship with him. The word that is, is translated as come in this passage is also translated as follow uh, in several other passages. And it's the exact word that Jesus uses when he calls his disciples. He says, follow me. And the idea is not that you walk along behind, but that you come to and you walk with. There's a, it's enter into a relationship with me and walk with me and come to know me and listen to me. That's the first uh, command or exhortation that we have in this passage here. To those who are struggling to try to make themselves right with God. The command, the exhortation is come to Jesus. Enter into Jesus, to a relationship with Jesus and follow him. The next command that's part of this invitation is take my yoke upon you. What does that mean? Well, I mean, in that day and time, probably if you lived in, in, a, in a, any kind of a rural setting, you knew what a yoke was. And I'm not sure that I always, I, I get confused sometimes about what a yoke is, but the thing that comes to my mind immediately, the visual image that comes to my mind, and I think came to their mind as well, would be the, the uh, wooden object that was used to, to join two animals together so that they could pull a plow or a wagon or whatever was necessary to do, that yoke that you would put on there. 
Sometimes people talk about it as if the yoke could be a single, uh, just for one animal, like a, a harness that you put over the head, and it's the, the part that wraps around them. But as it was used in this day and time, it did not mean that. It actually had the connotation, uh, uh, and the root idea of it was to join together by being coupled together. And what I uh, found to be kind of an uh, easy example for me to understand is the idea of like when you have a set of scales and you have both pans of the scales, the bar that runs across that set of scales, that's also a yoke because it joined those two sets of scales together. So the idea is that there is this joining together by being coupled together. So what in the world did Jesus mean when he said, take my yoke upon you? How do we do that? What is that? Now, this is the, 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 the image, the visual image that comes to me as I read this and as we think about this. What is Jesus asking us to do? To take the yoke that it's already on him in one sense, right? He's the lead animal visually. We put the yoke on and we walk with him. What does that do as we think about it? Now, I don't... I don't know about y'all, but I, I used to love to read. I still love to read. I read The Call of the Wild a dozen times when I was a young man and, and several times into adulthood. And The Call of the Wild is a story about being in Alaska and in the frontier and all that. And you had the dogs. And you had the dog sleds and you had the packs of dogs that are in there. And they would harness all those dogs together. And in The Call of the Wild, the battle is about who gets to be the lead dog, right? And the animal that's going to going to be the one that is in the front that, that controls everything. Now, that's the way we would think about this even with, when we think about well, we're going to come to Jesus and be yoked to Jesus. We think about him being in the lead and us being in the trail of dogs behind him. But that's not the visual image that he wants us to see from this. What is the visual image that he wants us to see? Two animals yoked together, pulling, working, walking together, him being one of us. He came to live here for us. He came to suffer for us. He came to work for us. And he came to die for us. And he wants us to walk with him. In the words that he says in, in a couple of chapters later, take up your cross and follow me. Daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. That's the idea that we have in this passage. So if we take his yoke upon us, the next thing that we're told here is to learn from him. What do you, what do you get with that? So this is where I, and the idea of the call of the wild really struck me. The lead dog knows exactly what the master wants. And when the lead dog turns, what does everybody else do? They turn, they follow. When he pulls harder, what do they do? They turn and they pull harder. That's kind of the image that's there. So with this image, what we have is Jesus is the one who is, he's not, he's not the lead dog. He is the one carrying the weight. The yoke is on him, but we are yoked right there beside him. And when he turns, we turn. When he turns to the right, we turn. And when he pulls hard, we pull hard. We don't just ride along and not be a part of it, right? What he's asking us to do is to walk with him, to pull with him, but to learn from him and to follow his lead.
Um, so those, so as we look at this, these are the three things that Jesus exhorts us to do. Come to him, take his yoke, be coupled together with him, and learn from him. That's what walking with Christ is. That's what he calls us to do. What are the promises that go with that? Verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the first promise. And I will give you rest. Uh, and then he repeats that promise in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Okay. What does that mean? That, that we will find rest for our souls. That he will give us rest. What kind of rest is he talking about? We look at this visual image and, what, and you start to think, well, what does rest mean? What does it mean to rest? I asked that question to my Sunday school class this morning and the first answer was sleep. You know, and we got a lot of different ideas about what does it mean to What does it mean to rest? It really means to cease from the activity. That's the way the word was used in this day and time, what it meant. To cease from the activity, from the work, the striving that you were doing. So in the context of this statement, what did Jesus mean when he said, I will give you rest and you will find rest for your souls? Rest from what? This is not about how hard it is as we walk through daily life. It's not about the difficulties that we have. Uh, some of us face more than others as we go through daily life. What is the work that Jesus gives us rest from? It's works righteousness. It's the work that Jesus gives us rest from is this idea that we all have and we all harbor at some place that we have to make ourselves acceptable or right to God. That I have to do something to make myself worthy of the salvation, the gift that God has given. What is the promise? I will give you rest. How does Jesus give us rest from our sense and need and efforts to make ourselves right with God? Well, the answer is very straightforward, right? He did the work. He suffered. He died in our place. He is our righteousness. He is our redemption. He is our sanctification. He makes us right with God. And when he does that, it gives us rest for our souls. I've been a believer for 50 years, 55 years, I don't know, for a long time since I was a young child. I still to this day find myself trying to step into the lead and pull that harness myself or make myself acceptable to God. I still to this day have to constantly remind myself what the gospel is, that Jesus Christ gives me that rest.
I do not have to, I cannot work hard enough to justify myself to God or to make myself right with God. And neither can you. We cannot do that. But Jesus has done that for us. And when we trust in Him, not just once, when we trust in Him day in and day out, what do we have? We have rest for our souls. The fear is gone because the relationship with God through Jesus Christ, His Son, is present in our hearts and lives. Uh, so you look at verse 30, there's a, uh, I don't know that I would call it a promise, but there's a statement of fact here. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, a lot of times we hear um, the gospel presented in a way that all we have to do is say a prayer and it's done. And we have uh, done that. But that's not the way Jesus gives this invitation. What does he actually ask us to do? To take his yoke upon us, to be coupled to him, to walk with him. And if we do that, well, it is easy. What do you think of when I, when I say that? And it's easy. Well, if you're thinking about life will be easy for you, uh, you're just wrong, right? Well, no, in truth, that's just not that. You don't enter into a relationship with Jesus and all of a sudden life is easy and you're just walking down easy street, right? We still suffer, we still struggle, we still pull and work together and walk with Jesus Christ with our shoulders against uh, the harnesses just like his are. But, but it is easy because he's the one that's truly carrying the weight and the load. He's done it all. We are just walking with him. Um, the burden is not heavy in that sense. Now I'm going to go backwards for just a moment. I skipped over the last half of verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Who said that? For I am gentle. Say it out loud. Who said that? And who is Jesus? We just read a moment ago in Hebrews. Who is Jesus? He is the exact representation of God Almighty. Who is Jesus? He is the wisdom of God. You know what Jesus did? He spoke the universe into existence. He spoke it, and it was. He set everything in order that we know about, that we think about today. He is our creator. He is the creator of all that there is. He is eternal, has always been, and will always be. When he speaks, it happens. And he accomplishes everything exactly the way he intends to accomplish it. And how does he describe himself in his passage? I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's what this book is about. That phrase, 
I am gentle and lowly in heart. Will has asked each of you to pick up one of these and take it home and read it with your family. I am just about finished with it. This is an excellent book. The name of it is Gentle and Lowly. This book is focused on the heart of God. It is astounding to me to think that the Creator, God Almighty, describes Himself as gentle and lowly, humble, kind. He's gentle and lowly in heart. What does that mean? That means that he, his basic disposition is uh, gentleness and kindness, mercy. My view of God for most of my uh, young life, uh, and until I started reading through the scriptures over and over again, was that God was the judge sitting on the bench. And that judgment day was coming, and there was just this fear of judgment. He's high and exalted and lifted up, which he is, right? The scriptures tell us that. But he's gentle and lowly of heart. God is mercy. God is love. His disposition towards us is to show us that mercy and that love. Because he is gentle and lowly of heart, humble in heart. We cannot separate the invitation of Jesus from who he is. He doesn't ask us to come forward and walk down an aisle and say a prayer and make a commitment uh, and then turn around and walk away. What's he ask us to do? To come to him, to take his yoke, to be joined to him, to follow him, and to learn from him. How do we accept his invitation? What I I really want to do right now is open that up for discussion. And we need to have that as a discussion question. You ask yourself, how do we accept Jesus' invitation? How often do we accept Jesus' invitation? Come to me, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. Well, let me tell you something. I have to do that every day. Moment by moment at times. If I'm going to walk with him, if I'm going to follow him and be joined to him, that's something that I, I have to constantly do. But what I am doing when I do that is responding in faith to his invitation. How do you respond to that invitation? How did you respond to it this morning? How will you tomorrow?
Trust him. Come to him. Take his yoke upon you. And learn from him. If you look at chapter 12 of Matthew in the ESV, there are, are uh, captions at the beginning of every chapter or, or beginning of every division of thought that are there. They try and give you an idea what's coming next. This is the, this is the caption that's written for uh, Matthew chapter 12 that follows immediately after what we just talked about. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And this is one of those situations where his disciples picked some grain, crushed it up, and ate it. And they were accused of, of doing work on the Sabbath. And Jesus uh, said to those who were accusing them um, uh, that something greater than the temple was there, meaning himself, the Son of God, the one who was to come was greater than the temple, that he was there. And he goes on to say, uh, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And this is what I want us to focus on. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I've read that so many times uh, over my life, and I, I, it wasn't until just this week and reading that, that it just hit me and I made the connection. We, we interpret that Lord of the Sabbath and what do we think about when we say that Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath? We think about the day of rest and that he was, he's right, Lord of the day of the rest that was commanded. But the Sabbath, if you actually read that word uh, in the Greek, as you come, not, not necessarily in the Greek, and as you read that word as it comes out, it's the same word that is translated as rest. So read it this way. Jesus Christ is Lord of the rest. This passage, which seems disconnected from the invitation that we just read, is not disconnected from it. He is reemphasizing again that he is the ruler over, the master over our rest. We were created in Jesus to do good works, to walk yoked together with him. Never to justify ourselves. He's done that work for us. He gives us the rest because he is our rest. And he is Lord of the rest. Are you resting in the work of Jesus Christ? Are you walking with him, yoked to him, and learning from him. That's what this passage cries out to me. And the truth that we have to grasp is that he is the one. He is our wisdom, God's wisdom for us. He is God's righteousness for us. He is God's sanctification for us and he is God's redemption for us applied to us come to him take his yoke upon you and learn from Jesus Christ the Lord of the Sabbath let's pray Father I thank you for your word uh, it is so um, 
powerful. Uh, it speaks to me, Father, and I just pray that, that I would follow you, trust in you, walk with you, uh, join to you each day. You call us to come. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering and dying in my place, in our place. I cannot really fathom what it means when you said you were gentle and lowly. But I know that if you hadn't been, I would not uh, have been able to come or enter into a relationship with you. And it is just beyond my ability to comprehend that you want to have that kind of a relationship with us. We thank you and we praise you. And we give you all the glory. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.